0: Hello and welcome to the Development and Justice podcast from the studios at Multnomah University in Portland, Oregon, a rainy Portland, Oregon day here. My name is Greg Birch and I have the honor of hosting this podcast where we engage in faith-based discussions with thought leaders and practitioners who are wrestling with the complexities of working in the areas of holistic mission, justice, development, and peace building. My role here at Multnomah is directing the graduate program in Global Development and Justice just a quick disclaimer, uh, the views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not necessarily represent our host institution, Multnomah University. Thank you, Multnomah, for hosting us. Hey, um, I have the opportunity and the privilege to introduce you to Craig Greenfield. Welcome to the Development and Justice podcast.
1: Thanks, Craig. It's great to be here.
0: So uh, I know it's... it's. Uh, A new place for you, Portland. How much have you spent any time here before? I've visited, but um, yeah, it's still as rainy as I remember. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? We are grateful to have the rain. We went for at least three months without any rain at all this summer. So, you know, we're literally like, thank you, Lord, for this rain. And I'm going to try to keep up that attitude throughout the rainy season. (laughs) If I can, it's hard for me being a Southern California kid. Um, Hey, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Um, Let me just give you a quick intro to Craig and his background. Craig has been working for over two decades, living in slums and in poor communities around the world, and we'll hear more from him on that. Uh, He has established a series of initiatives to care for vulnerable children. Um, You know, my background working with Mm at-risk youth and kids on the street, I, I look forward to digging in a little bit as we can. For eight years, Craig has Craig led servants a ministry with, within the slums of Asia. His postgrad research was in international development, which led to the publication of the book, The Urban Halo. Craig's second book, Subversive Jesus, was published by Zondervan, and today we'll be talking about his third book, Subversive Mission. Can't wait to get into the conversation. Mm-hmm. Craig, I'm wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, your family, um, where you're working sure. these days, and, and so forth.
1: For sure, yeah. Uh, well, as you can tell by my accent, I was um, <laughs> born in Canada, <laughs> but I grew up in New Zealand. Okay, now and, now that um, makes sense. <laughs> I've actually spent most of my adult life uh, outside New Zealand, living in the slums in Phnom Penh, Cambodia, mm. and uh, living in inner city Vancouver, Canada, where we established a Christian community amongst the poor
0: there. Okay.
1: So I like to say I'm an outsider who helps insiders become alongsiders. Mm. Um much wherever I go, I'm an outsider. And so I've thought a lot and I guess written a lot too about the role of outsiders in the world.
0: You know, um, that concept of Alongsiders, I think you are part of a movement, an mm-hmm. organization called Alongsiders. Uh, maybe you could share a little bit about your work in Cambodia. I'd love to hear more um, and how you how you engage with, with youth. For sure. Well, uh,
1: the Alongsiders movement, um, It did start in Cambodia, and what we do is we challenge young Christians, um, primarily in Asia and Africa, but now also just starting off in Latin America and Europe, um, to make a simple but powerful commitment to walk alongside those who walk alone. And so, in practice, what that looks like is each of those youth or young adults um, take on one vulnerable child each, one ch- one child from their community that they can really invest in, walk alongside, love, encourage, disciple, just be like a big brother, mm. um, or as we call them, alongsiders. Oh. And um, that's spread to, like I said, almost um, almost thirty countries now around the world. Um, started in Cambodia and. At this point, um, heading towards 20,000 children and youth involved in that multi-year kind of journey
0: mm. is alongside us and little brothers and sisters. So really an emphasis on mentoring. Is that what I'm hearing?
1: Yeah. I mean, you call it mentoring, call it discipleship. I mean, it's it's deep. It's sacrificial. Mm. It's um, it's relational. Mm. And most importantly, it's transformational. So um, I, I would say it goes beyond
0: mentoring. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think I also read something about a camp you're involved with in Cambodia.
1: Yeah, we uh, we established Cambodia's first adventure camp as a social enterprise, um, so to you know not only meet a need but also to generate some funds for the movement. Okay. Called Shalom Valley. Shalom Valley.
0: Yeah. Okay. Terrific. Um, you know, in your first in the first chapter of your book, uh, Sub- Subversive Mission, you mentioned being an outsider working for change runs in your blood. Mm-hmm. How? What do you mean by that?
1: Um, well, yeah, almost literally in the sense of my grandparents were missionaries in India hmm. for 25 years. My my parents were missionaries based out of Singapore for 25 years. So there's a sense in which um, my family are people who have sought to love their neighbors around the world. Um, when I was growing up in New Zealand, my, my family, my parents really welcomed in those who were not always welcome in our society. So we had a... a Bunch of kids, foster kids, mm. people out of prison, refugees. My my home was always full, mm. and um, those were those were biblical principles that um, I've sought to live out myself. Yeah. Wow,
0: man! I would love to to dig into that question. I think most parents would love to dig into that question, like how do we have that impact on our own kids, mm. right? And it sounds like to me, your parents lived it, right? Yeah, and, and and that over. Flowed into your own life and your, impacted your own worldview. It it
1: did, yeah,
0: yeah. Sorry, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's just as a as a parent. Those are the type of questions that that's that right. jump in my head. Yeah, you know, so we'll see how my kids turn out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, um, you know, what led you to really start Alongsiders is, um,
1: I guess, uh, you know, I I um, my gifting and my passion and my calling. Um, you know, in my undergraduate, I studied. Business and I, I guess what I'm passionate about is starting new initiatives in alongside and with the poor that mm. will benefit those those who are on the margins, those who are at the bottom of the heap. And so, um, as you know, we've I've worked for NGOs for many years and done you know NGO type projects, social enterprise, and and there's a place for all of those. But I guess I began to explore um, the potential of movements, people movements that um, would very much not be not be kind of catalyzed by outside resources or funds, but would be movements that are because people are passionate and they catch a vision and they are willing to lay down their lives for their neighbours. So um, as we were working with vulnerable children, particularly children at that stage in Cambodia in the early 2000s who were being orphaned by AIDS, um, we wanted to see... You know, how could the church mobilize to come alongside these children? And then it expanded much beyond that, of course.
0: That idea of starting a movement or being part of a movement, mm. um, being part of a work with vulnerable children without outside resources, yeah. that's pretty radical. I mean, yeah, there are very few organizations or very few um, you know, individuals that I know of that, that are involved in that we have tremendous amount of resources here in, in North America, for example. Mm. Um, you know, when, when it comes to supporting movements like that, how, how do people support you if they're not giving outside resources? So um, it's, it's, not,
1: it's not, I mean, we're not so purist that we would say there's never any money or costs or expenses involved, but we don't want money to be the thing that is motivating people to act okay. with love towards their neighbors. So... Um, so first and foremost, all the is all those twenty thousand who are involved, none of them are paid in any way. Mm-hmm. But what we do do is we put into their hands every every month a comic book in their own heart language, um, which is drawn by local artists in local languages, and that provides some kind of structure to that discipleship or mentoring relationship um, over three years. Wow. And so that that does cost money. So it's not that we never use any funding. Mm-hmm. But um, you're not going to be motivated just by getting a comic book um, to lay down your life for one of your neighbors. So yeah. I think that's the difference. It's ju- just a difference in emphasis.
0: That's really helpful to hear that. I, and I would love to continue to explore that model um, a little bit more. Mm. Um, you know, as, as someone who teaches and thinks often about the role of Westerners in mission, you uh, your book in particular is the book that I've been waiting to get my hands on, honestly. Thank you. Um, for over a decade now, I have come into contact with a lot of young people wanting to be involved with what God is doing around the world. Um, but some have felt this kind of a pushback mm. uh, due to academic um, research and, and so forth. Um, they're afraid of kind of continuing the colonial forms of mission. Mm-hmm. And so they feel paralyzed, literally. Mm-hmm. Um, by this notion of, of colonial or imperialist mission forms that exist out there. And mm-hmm. maybe it's been all the books published over the past 15 to 20 years that have critiqued both the past and future of, of Westerners and mission. And, and what I found in your book is it, it provides a, a way forward. And I'd love to talk a little bit mm-hmm. more about that. You share in the, in the uh, opening lines of your book of receiving an invitation to share about the work of alongsiders in India and what a great opportunity it would be to share with twenty thousand people. You talk about that story. Um, your friend and your mentor steers you steers you away from the opportunity because of his concern that it would be perceived as an outsider movement, right? Um, so, you know, why did you choose to share that story at the beginning of the book, and mm. how does that story end? And um, you know, and in and, and in heeding uh, his advice, what kind of impact did that have?
1: Mm. Yeah, and that, that friend and mentor was uh, a friend of mine from South India, Paul. Mm. Um, so I think the, I, that's, that's the challenge, isn't it? Um, we are ever more um, understanding and you know, we have ever more insight into the history of colonialism, mm-hmm. and rightly so. Um, and that has shone a light on uh, our practices in missions. And if you actually look, I mean, if we look back to you know, the birth of Jesus... In, under the empire, under the Roman empire. He's born in Bethlehem because there's a census. Mm. And um, the reasons there's a, that an empire has a census is kind of twofold. The taxes, they want to know how many people they can get money out of. and They want to know how many soldiers they can recruit or that they have to suppress. So it's money and power. So Jesus is born under the twin pillars of money and power, the two twin pillars of empire. And then very interesting, the next, very next chapter, Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist then calls two very specific groups to repentance, the tax collectors and the soldiers. So right from the very beginning of Jesus' birth, um, his upside-down kingdom is coming in stark contrast to the empire. And so empire is just another way of naming colonialism. Um, And so wherever missions or development or those types of things have used money and power to bring change rather than the values and priorities of the kingdom of God, um, that's where we've gone off track. Now, I'm not saying there's never any money to be involved or even any power, but it's to recognize that those are not the things that we use for change um, and we have to be very self-aware. Now, the challenge is that we critique where we see empire in missions, but we don't critique where we see empire in our day-to-day lives in the Western world. Mm-hmm. I mean, money and power yeah, yeah. make the world go around. Mm-hmm. So let's not just say, well, let's run away from global involvement because it's colonial. I mean, our lives are under the twin pillars of the empire. Wow. And so if we're going to have a critique, let's critique everything. Um, but that, that's the challenge, isn't it? Nobody wants to be a white saviour or a saviour of any colour. Uh, We want to, many of us want to love our brothers and sisters around the world, but we want to do it in ways that are healthy and sustainable and don't center us as outsiders, because I think we've kind of realized that our role is to come alongside, uh, to be the sidekicks, not the superheroes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so when I was invited to be on that stage in India, 20,000 young people, it was a great opportunity. They would like to have a white guy there preaching. But um, Paulus wisely said that will immediately label this movement as a movement that is linked to the money and power that comes with Westerners.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. It won't be seen as an insider movement, a grassroots discipleship movement. And so that's why he rightly advised me to step back from that. And since then the alongsiders movement has exploded mm-hmm. around India. And around wow. the world. I mean, it's incredible. But all locally led. Most of them don't know who Craig Greenfield is. I've never been to many of the countries where Alongsideers discipleship movements are. So it's certainly not centered on Craig Greenfield. Mm, mm. Um, it's about local ownership and local leaders. When when, when when those leaders say to me, are you the founder? I say, no, you are the founder. You're the founder of the Alongsideers discipleship movement in your neighborhood, in mm-hmm. your community. Um, so that, that's that's really why I wrote this book, is because there's a great sense of paralysis. Um, I think in the Western world, amongst those of us who are in the up-and-coming generations, there's a sense of, yeah, I, 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 love, I don't want to just love my neighbours across the street. I want to do that, but I want to love my neighbours across the oceans as well. But I, the last thing I want to do is you know, do all the things that it talks about and When Helping Hurts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're all worried about that, man. <laughs> yeah, nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to be that person. Yeah, yeah. But that's, w- and so in this book, I've brought a framework that I think will be helpful for people to have a sense of these are the ways in which I can serve, that I can be released to serve in, in healthy and wise ways.
0: You know, in reading um, through through the book this last week, I, I that's what jumped out at me, like, Finally, we have a book that not only understands the critique, Mm -hmm. but points a way forward for our our young, um, you know, students here and and other places around the world, young people wanting to engage globally. You discuss Westerners playing God. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an important concept. That's a good critique. Um, This is what Jayakumar Christian refers to as God complexes. And I wonder if you can give us an example of the consequences of playing gods in the lives of the poor and what that looks like and, and point a way forward uh, as you look at Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. Yes, I think, I think the challenge is that um, when we play God
1: or we play Savior, um, we are replacing the malevolent saviors in the lives of the poor. So, the you know, there are tycoons, there are local politicians, there are local people who are, you know, really trampling over the poor and downtrodden. And so, yeah, to replace those with ourselves, with yeah. our access to resources, yeah, seems like a good swap. <laughs> and and the poor are, you know, pretty willing to do that swap, you know. Mm. They would rather have us as their patron than, um, than to have the local tyrant as their patron, you know. But but the reality, the problem with that is, of course, that we are taking on the role that is meant to be for God, and so we're pointing people towards ourselves rather than towards towards God. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, if you look at the feeding of the five thousand, for example, Jesus had just sent out his disciples two by two. You know, first missionaries sent out by Jesus, right there. And his 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 main instruction is, don't take anything in your hands. Like, do go empty-handed. Um, and so they come back, and they're immediately faced again with a huge need, 5,000 people. And they still haven't learned the lesson. They're, they are kind of paralyzed. And this is where much of the church is right now. They're, you know, we don't know what to do. And so they say to Jesus, send them all home because we don't know what to do here. <laughs> so, so the... The response of paralysis, Jesus, is re, Jesus responds to that back and says, that's not good enough. No, don't. You, <laughs> the apathy is not the answer. Right, right. It's yeah. not the answer. Yeah. And so they, they come back again and they say, okay, well then let's have a charitable response. Should we get half a year's wages to buy food for all these people? Surely that's not what you want. And Jesus says, you're right. That's not the right answer either, bringing in outside resources. The answer is still there. Open your eyes. Open your eyes to see. And of course, we know how the story plays out. As this little boy comes forward with a with pathetic <laughs> amount of resources in his hands, it's it's just ridiculous. And that's very often what our eyes see: is the resources in the hands of the poor to solve their own problems are pathetic. But that's really what Jesus wants to use: is those resources of the poor, which you know we all today we call that asset based community development. <laughs> is having eyes to see that, but having the faith to see it as well. And that's I believe that's how God works.
0: Hmm. Craig, in your book, Sub- Subversive Mission, um, much of your work is built around Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, where Paul describes five different types of giftedness for serving God in the world and, and the church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds. Uh, and teachers, you expand these into catalyst for apostle, mm. ally for prophet, seeker for evangelist, midwife for pastor. Love that imagery, and guide for teacher. You say in your book, "I believe that these five types continue to provide a promising framework for how we can serve the world, even in our post-colonial era." Mm. But we need to examine them through different eyes. Yeah, I wonder if you can go into that a little bit more with sure. with us. Well, um, I mean,
1: let's face it, I think, the and maybe this is uh, going a little bit too far for some of your listeners, but I would say that the word missionary um, holds so much baggage that it's now a, a liability more than an asset. I mean, it's, it, it's one of those words. And one of the challenges with the word missionary is that it's, it's everything under one term. And so, you know, and so that's where you get this clash going on of churches saying, well, are you doing this one thing? And we want numbers. <laughs> and, uh, and I think people are quite rightly so reacting against that and saying, well, the, the kingdom of God is much broader than that. So that's why I like this fivefold framework for one reason, is because it, it says there's, there's more than one way to be in the world. There's more than one way to love our neighbors. In fact, we all have a unique giftedness. And um, But as we read these, this Ephesians 4 framework, what I want to suggest is that those are roles for insiders. So you may be a pastor here in Seattle. Fantastic. You're an insider here in Seattle, uh, in Portland, Seattle, wherever you are. Um, you may be a pastor. But when you get on that plane and you go to um, Bangalore in India, um, the challenge is to take off that hat and reframe that gifting and come instead as a midwife, helping local pastors, local Christian leaders, to give birth to communities of faith. So the pastor, the insider pastor, becomes the outsider who's a midwife. So the beautiful thing is there's Mm. still a role. Yeah, There's still a role, but Mm -hmm. you're not at the center. And I think intuitively we know that now. We know that we need to come with a more humble posture. Mm -hmm. But there's still a role. And we can help and come alongside. And, of course, we need to unpack what that looks like and how we do that. And that's what I do in the book. So the pastor becomes midwife. I'll, I'll go through a couple more. Um, the prophet. And um, my gifting is, is in that kind of area. I, I'm passionate about justice. I want to see justice come. I want to speak truth to power. And uh, you know, I've been involved in all kinds of prophetic actions, protest movements, um, Pirates of Justice up in Vancouver, yeah. BC. Look it up. Yeah, I looked at um, that. You know, I love that. But my role when I go to Cambodia is not to to lead the protest, not to lead the speaking truth to power, but to come as an ally, to come as an ally, to amplify the voices of local prophets. So I'll, t- I'll share a little story. You know, my family and I, um, and we've lived in slums in Cambodia for 15 years, urban poor communities, and um, we've been evicted along with our neighbours twice from two different slum communities. Well, one of the young women there, a young woman named Dep Bani, her and her four friends, um, all young women were being evicted from their slum. And they, um, you know, they, were ju- they had nowhere to turn. They had nothing left at their, at their fingertips for, to do and to, to solve this issue. And so they drag their beds into the middle of the busiest intersection in Cambodia. You can just imagine the gr- the, as the cars grind to yeah. a halt, the gridlock, the mm-hmm. dust, the honking, the shouting, and then you hear the sound of the boots of soldiers running towards them. And they just grab Depvani and her friends and just bundle them up into a van and drag them off to prison. You know, as a, as a prophet, she's speaking truth to power. She's saying, we have no place to lay our heads, and so we'll lay them here. She's speaking out about injustice. And that's, that's right, that she is leading the way in that. You know, I've been evicted from slums too, but it affects me differently. If I, you know, I won't be sent to prison. I'll just be deported. And so my role is to come as an ally to local prophets like Depp Bunny and amplify her story. Here I am. On a podcast, telling her story about this injustice, Aung San Suu Kyi said, use your liberty to promote ours. That's the role of an ally, Mm. is to amplify the voices of those who are called to fight for justice and strengthen their hand, encourage them, support them where we can. Mm. So you have pastor becomes midwife, prophet becomes ally. And then I go through each of the five types and show how it needs to be reframed into a slightly different posture.
0: You know, working in in justices um, prophetic ministry is extremely tiring. Mm. As we wrap up here, I'm, I'm just I'm just curious if you wouldn't mind sharing about what sustains you and gives you hope in your work. Um, you know, you must have had moments when you have felt discouraged, being evicted along with your your friends and communities, uh, when work seems daunting. What keeps you going?
1: I guess that I've asked over the years, asked God to give me eyes to see those tiny moments of, of hope and breakthrough wherever we see it. And often those things are so tiny and silly that, you know, you wouldn't even speak them out. But if we hold on to this posture of mindfulness of, God, give me eyes to see. Where is a little burst of hope coming through? And um, I, th- I think, you know, particularly working amongst the poor, there's often those little breakthroughs, those little milestones that are reached, these, you know, things that happen. Mm. I remember asking Rachel, one of the alongsiders in Malawi, how did you choose your little sister? Because they all choose their own one. That's part of the sense of ownership, right? And Rachel says to me, Craig, I um, actually come from a village that's notorious for trafficking and prostitution. and When I heard about the vision of Alongsiders, I wanted to be an Alongsiders, so I went into my home and prayed, asked God to show me who should be my little sister. And as I prayed, I looked out my window and I saw one of my neighbours, a little girl named Esther, and her family were teaching her how to dance seductively for men. And uh, so I decided to take on Esther and be her Alongsider and help her get into school, help her be part of the Christian community. I I asked Rachel last week how Esther was doing because it's been a few years and she said, well, Esther just finished high school mm. and now she wants to train to become a nurse. And so this beautiful blossoming of the poor helping the poor, those who are downtrodden reaching out to others in their own situation um to me gives me a lot of hope.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I could I could definitely see that and holding on to those stories of where God is yeah. is moving among the poor, right? Yeah. I see I think sometimes we get so um i don't we lose focus i at least i have mm. you know because I see all the problems around me, the injustices around me and and fail to see what God is doing in different yeah. locations different contexts and um so i I would yeah i I would totally agree that's that's really important to look for the hope in the midst of of yeah. Yeah. some of these um arenas
1: and yeah. and that's one of the reasons why we need to be globally involved, mm. <laughs> gosh. When I look at the United States, I sometimes feel hopeless. I feel sad. I feel discouraged. But when I and of course there's good things bubbling up here as well. But when I look to the rest of the world and um, places where the abandoned places of the empire, um, I see the kingdom breaking through.
0: Wow, wow, powerful. Uh, do you have any final words for those that that do feel paralyzed, like like? Like, what role would they have globally being engaged as cross-cultural workers?
1: You know, I believe there's a role. and um, But it, it needs to be bathed in humility, and wisdom, and learning, self-awareness. Um, if folks want to engage with this, if you go to my website, craiggreenfield.com, there's a, you can take a missional types test, one of those little 27-question quizzes, and find out what type um, kind of maybe resonates with your gifting and read a little bit more on that that website.
0: Can they also find out information on Subversive Mission on your website?
1: Subversive Mission is right there on the website too.
0: Really cool. Hey, um, I am so grateful to have had this chance to talk to Craig Greenfield with the Alongsiders here with me today about his new book, Subversive Mission. Thank you for joining me as we dialogue on the tensions and areas of convergence when it comes to thinking about the nexus of development, justice, and peace-building work. If you want to look into the graduate program here at Multnomah Global Development and Justice, you can find out more about our program by visiting us at Multnomah.edu slash M-A-G-D-J. Multnomah.edu slash M-A-G-D-J. All right, that's it. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us, Craig. Thank you.